Ghana has entertained projects of institutional change over the past few years, such as the creation of new administrative regions. But some institutions, of which are informal, have yet to be reformed, particularly campaign finance. Moreover, some Ghanaians have expressed concern over gender inclusion among nationally elected leaders. There are less than 15% of seats in national parliament held by women. On the bright side, the most recent Afrobarometer survey conducted in 2017 indicates that 72% of Ghanaians believe that women should have the same chance of being elected. Today's host, Peter Pena, has a conversation with Ms. Gloria Ovori-Boadu about women in activism and politics in Ghana. Gloria is presently a lecturer in law at the Ghana Institute of Management and Public Administration, GIMPA. She is also the founder of the Women's Assistant and Business Association, WABA. Gloria has been an advocate on many issues, including women's rights, ending domestic violence, and improving law education in Ghana. This is Leaders' Voices from Leaders of Africa, a podcast where we discuss African leadership from the perspective of thought leaders shaping politics, economics, education, and on this episode, women empowerment in Ghana. When you look at the documents of those who drafted the constitution, they said until the last person in the remotest hamlet of Ghana gets to know and appreciate their rights and also gets to know and have a means of assessing any redress when it comes to violation of their rights, the constitution will not have succeeded. What is it like to run for office in Ghana? My name is Peter, and my guest, Gloria Afori Boydu, joins me at the African Studies Association 2019 conference. Gloria, welcome. Thank you, Peter. So you are the founder and president of the Women's Assistance and Business Association, that is WABA. Tell us a little bit about WABA. WABA in our local Akan language simply means he or she has arrived. And I used to be a banker for 11 years. And then I resigned and went and studied a master's of law, basically on international law and comparative rights of women. So I got interested and wrote my graduate paper from Georgetown Law on how Ghanaian women, the law and economic power could be merged. So based on that, when I went to Ghana, I founded this non-profit, which basically was to give women a chance to be economically empowered. We started it as a women assistance and business agency, and it was a microcredit organization. We used to give credit to the women, but we found out that when you give minimum credit to a, a woman in business and you also educate or build her capacity, she becomes bigger. She wants more money and we couldn't afford it. So we moved them to the rural banks. But then somewhere along the line, we decided that if you train these women in vocational skills, hands-on skills, that could also be a form of self-employment because in Ghana, we don't have a lot of jobs. So we also came up with the self-employment and vocational skills training. And we had a pool of women who had been trained. So we said, why do we let them go? Why don't we have a form of association whereby we can continue to mentor and build capacity with each other? And that was the board changed the name Women Assistance and Business Agency to Women Assistance and Business Association. But we still maintain the acronym WABA, which means he or she has arrived. 
Obviously, you have been engaged in civil society, broadly speaking. So I'm curious, from the founding of WABA to the present, how has activism in civil society changed in Ghana, if it has changed at all since you founded WABA? I got employed somewhere along the line in 1999 as the executive director of the International Federation of Women Lawyers. And during that period, we propagated and worked and advocated for a domestic violence legislation in Ghana. In fact, when I was at FIDA, we were the first institution to ever write a book, a handbook on domestic violence. And this is because when I was at Georgetown Law, I belonged to the sex discrimination class, which was a six-credit class that got us going to the community and meet with real problems of domestic violence and defend the victims in the D.C. courts. So I remember that gave me an awareness of the issue of domestic violence in Ghana. And that was only in 1997, which is about 22 years ago. To think that it's just 22 years ago that the issue and visibility of domestic violence became pronounced in Ghana through my work. And I always said that why? We we assume we have a beautiful society, family-oriented, extended family, and so we did not have an abusive society. But that was not the case. Domestic violence is everywhere, also in Ghana. Now I want to turn to your background. And you have a diverse set of experiences that span both Ghana and the United States. For instance, you completed your master's at Georgetown University Law Center. Further, you are a congressional fellow in the office of Congresswoman Eva Clayton from North Carolina of the United States House of Representatives. How have your experiences abroad, particularly in the United States, shaped your worldview and advocacy? I will say that when I was a congressional fellow in 96 in the U.S. Congress, and I'll always say that I watched how bipartisan bills were initiated in Congress. And so when I went to Ghana and I wanted to advocate for the Domestic Violence Act, I started the approach by looking at the opportunity for a bipartisan or multi-partisan legislation. And so we tried that. We tried it with the ruling government members and some MPs from the opposition and some MPs from the population committee. But unfortunately, it was a new thing in Ghana. And so the domestic violence legislation, even though it was passed later on, we had to give it back to government, to the Attorney General drafting section, and they passed it through cabinet before it got to parliament and was passed in 2007. And what are some of the influences of that legislation? Do you see any effects of that legislation today? Now we have a whole department. We used to have a department on women and juvenile units of the police service. And I'll say that our acts, our domestic violence advocacy generated that because we started advocacy in 97 and by 98 there was a women and juvenile unit of the police service. Now it has even moved on to be called the domestic violence and victim support services unit of the police services and they have offices all over Ghana. You are also a lawyer as you just mentioned. As you know there are serious frustrations with the way that law school works in Ghana. There is only one sanctioned law school, and performance rates on the national entrance exam are extremely low. What are your thoughts on the frustrations of law students? Should Ghana liberalize law education much the way you see in other countries? 
Yes. In fact, I'm also since 2012 August a law lecturer at the Ghana Institute of Management and Public Administration, GIMPA. And, you know, I have lectured brilliant students. I've lectured brilliant students. And what hurt me was that when my students, my first batch of students got to the law school, they took the entrance exams and they passed. But even though they passed, they were eliminated at the interview level by some questions like talk about the um, Burkina Faso Arab Spring and then they'll ask them in the interview, can you choose an area in the law that we can ask you a question? And someone will say, I prefer the consideration under contract law. And then they'll ask a question based on that five to 10 minute interview, 50 students who passed excellently the entrance exam were refused admission. So I remember I wrote an open letter, an open petition to the Chief Justice, which was published in the Daily Graphic of Ghana. The Daily Graphic has the widest circulation in Ghana. And the petition was that admit the 50 students who passed the exams. And even though I petitioned and the students went to see all the the General Legal Council and other groups who had the power to admit them, they were not admitted. Nevertheless, years later, the interview, which I consider so subjective and unfair, has been expunged from admission to the law school. And so once you pass, you are able to enter without that interview. Another problem is the issue of the so-called, I don't have the evidence, but the so-called poor performance of students who are entering the law school. I think it's so unfair. There are only 10 subjects they are going to study at that law school. And those subjects can equally be taught by those of us at the various universities. So my recommendation is that the General Legal Council can partner with some accredited law faculties. And then we will do the two-year training of 10 subjects. It's just 10 subjects bordering on practical sites. And a number of us are also practitioners as well as lecturers. So we can teach them. And we have some eminent judges of the Superior Court of Judicature who also teach. They can continue to teach by choosing some selected law faculties to teach and train these students so that at the end of the day, we can have a uniform bar exam. And based on the performance of the faculties, at the end of the day, we will know how admissions will go because some faculties will definitely perform better than others. But then the frustration of students not passing and having a whole backlog and all that uncertainty will be erased. What is preventing some of these good solutions to the problems you just identified? What are the impediments in the way? Well, I think that we still need to keep talking and we still need to keep writing. I can proudly say that because I captured my ideas in the petition to the CJ about the fact that the interviews did not help, the fact that we needed a higher percentage of lawyers in our community, it was a form of written advocacy against the interviews. So I think we need more written advocacies against, you know, to support the liberalization of the training. And we need to use those written advocacies to dialogue with all the stakeholders, academia, the bench, the bar, the general legal counsel, and even the law students and their parents. So, and even the states, because the state needs so many lawyers. It was recently published that the AG is understaffed by at least 300 lawyers. 
And now that we have 16 regions, in addition to the original 10, it used to be 10, now we have 16 regions. There are even more lawyers required at the local, districts, regional, and national levels. I think that confronts one of the common arguments or talking points that there are too many lawyers in the country or that liberalizing law education could produce a glut of lawyers and additional lawyers are not necessary. For a developing country like Ghana, if everybody could train to be a lawyer, that would be a big achievement because I still quote the Constituent Assembly, which got Ghana a constitution in 1992. Now, what I remember is that when you look at the documents of those who drafted the constitution, they said, until the last person in the remotest hamlet of Ghana gets to know and appreciate their rights and also gets to know and have a means of assessing any redress when it comes to violation of their rights, the constitution will not have succeeded. Some may not know this, but you ran for the member of parliament seat in Akim Abuakwa South constituency. What was this experience like? You know, interestingly, that wasn't my first time running for public office. From 2002 to 2006, I was the elected local government councillor for the Adenta community in the greater Accra region. And then I decided to go to parliament on the ticket of the new patriotic party, not where I live, because where I lived was Adenta. But the constitution allows us to contest either where you live or where you hail from. So I went to my hometown. It was an experience. I enjoyed it very much. I got to know the community. I got to know their problems. I appreciate their problems. But at the last minute, a corporate lawyer who has so much financial resources showed up and he beat me to it. But I still will not say he beat me to it because my campaign manager, for a reason I can never explain, became so close to this candidate who won the elections. And even after the elections were won, he was rewarded on a silver platter with the position of second vice chair of the Bwakwa South constituency. And he's now the first vice chair of the Bwakwa South constituency. And I still wonder what kind of reason or what information or what did he do to give to the candidate where I'm concerned that he's been rewarded in that way. Not only that, the elections were postponed four times. For four times, the executives kept postponing the elections. And even the last day, the final election date, they did not tell me. The chairman called me and told me that it was on a different date. And I was going around telling my electoral college members that, oh, see you on this day. They were like, no, ma'am. It's a different day. Can you imagine? That was so unfair. I had a very unfair experience. The goalposts kept being shifted. I had no support. My campaign manager, for a reason I will never understand till today, was rewarded by the candidate who won. And then after that, because I was working full-time with my non-profit WABA, I did not have time for a whole year to, you know, strategize and generate income. And so when I lost the primaries, I also became bankrupt because I was now not seen as civil society, but as political. And so in that way, you are stigmatized. Donors will not fund you because you are no longer civil society. And so I lost all my funding. After a lot of struggle, I just decided to go into academia, share my experiences and earn some income. Do you find it problematic that involvement in politics such as running for office on the local or particularly national level results in such stigmatization? 
Do you think this labeling prevents potentially good candidates from running for office? I can imagine that some good leaders may hesitate before jumping into the political arena. There's a lot of stigmatization when you get into politics. Well, unfortunately for me, when I lost my primaries, the party I contested with also lost the general elections. So that was a whole issue. You know, they were in opposition. They were not in government. But even then, I continued in my civil society, but with that political stigma. But it was still stressful. So I went into academia. That government came back into office in 2016. But I'm still not in public office. So, well... I don't know whether the stigmatization affected me with the opposition and also with my party. You are listening to Peter's conversation with Ms. Gloria Oforiboyadu. In the second half, they discuss ideas for major institutional reform in Ghana. You mentioned the issue of money in elections. And if anyone is reading the news these days, they notice the significant fees associated with running for office. For example, candidates must pay very high fees to political parties to file for nomination and to contest. What are your thoughts? Is this a major concern in your view? If so, what can Ghana do to improve campaign finance? I keep saying that the culture now is... When you want to contest primaries or what have you, you have to give delegates some form of, I won't call it compensation, some form of, is it gifts or whatever. And it's so expensive. The electoral colleges have been widened. So if you have 700 people in your electoral college, you have to give 700 gifts. That's so ridiculous. And so are we going to continue that with the MMCD elections? My recommendation is that we should look at other alternative modes of elections. Instead of one person winning and taking everything, what they call the first pass, the post, or the winner takes all. Can't we even look at a situation where... Political parties will contest, but not individuals. So the individuals at the local level will not have to look for all these expensive gifts. Then the party that has the highest percentage of votes will be able to appoint the chief executive of the local government. The second highest percentage will appoint the presiding member. The third will appoint a number of, you know, the members. And the assembly will reflect the percentage that each party had. In this way, parties will still be represented, but there will be opportunity for parties to appoint women, ethnic minorities, persons with disability, youth, to represent them at the local level. So this is something that I've discussed openly at some of these public forums. And I hope that we will still continue to think it through. Now, what advice would you offer Ghanaians considering a run for office in the upcoming elections next year? Oh, I'm giving advice for local governments. Now, next year, I think this culture of monetocracy breeds what we call plutocracy. That means it's those who are rich, who are resourced, who can win elections. We have to have a national debate, starting from the grassroots, as to how we can put a stop to that. And then that will help. Taking a step back, we see that democracy has been challenged in some countries that many democracy scholars were once excited about. Benin and Zambia come to mind. How about Ghana? How would you assess the health of democracy in Ghana today? I have lived through military regimes and I will never sacrifice democracy for a military regime. Even the ability to select our candidates every four years at local and national level is a big achievement. But the process of selection 
is something that we have to keep looking at. We should look at different forms of modules for electing our candidates. We should not focus on the first past the post or a tiny person winning a tiny fraction of votes and getting elected. We should look at a more diversified way, getting minorities also into elections, including women. Do you think that Ghana has the responsibility to help shape and influence its neighbors when it comes to democratic quality? Based on what you have shared already, it sounds like Ghana needs to work on some things at home first. I believe so, because we, what we are practicing was inherited from our colonial masters. In '69, we practiced the British parliamentary system. All ministers had to come from parliament. In '79, ministers could not come from parliament. It was strictly the American system. In 1992, is a blend of the American and parliamentary system where majority of ministers will come from parliament, but then non-MPs can also become ministers. Why are we copying America and Britain and the UK? When you go to Europe, there are so many models of governance and selecting candidates. Why don't we also study all these models, look at our ethnic minorities, our background, our young modern states, and see how we will not be polarized with partisan acrimony, but we'll be able to have some form of collaboration along party lines. And then we'll get, I'll repeat, minorities, including women, ethnic minorities, youth, persons with disability, to also have a strong opportunity to be part of the elected representatives of the people. So how do some of these discussions come about? How do you suggest that Ghana have these discussions about large-scale institutional reforms? There is already a national conversation about new administrative units and the role of local officials, but how can Ghanaians begin this dialogue about broader political institutions? I think there must be government will. I think academia must also play a role. Academia has done a lot of research when it comes to theories, and so there should be a way of making recommendations in writing to government, to stakeholders, so that we can study, we can dialogue, we can take our time like we did with the domestic violence legislation, like we did with even getting interviews stopped for the law school entry exams and all that, law school admissions. We can keep writing. Academia has owes us a responsibility to write. And also academia cannot write alone, but work closely with practitioners. Because sometimes I attend some of these events and I just say, this is utopia. You know, we don't want it to be. Talk to the practitioners, find out our experiences, capture it, let's discuss, let's write it, let's share it across the length and breadth of the country. Let government also get information. And together, we can work out something that fits our society and the future. You have long been an advocate for women. What are some of the challenges you believe women face in politics? And how would you describe your contributions over the years of your activism? Well, I will say what I enjoyed about my activism, when I said we advocated whilst I was a feeder, that's the International Federation of Women Lawyers, for women to go into politics. I also got into the trenches and I contested local government elections. I tried it for parliament, but I couldn't because I didn't have enough money. You know, I had a candidate who came in with so much resources and was even able to take away my campaign manager. 
I still talk about it. So I think the issue of money is important. Then the issue of godfathers and godmothers. Having people in the party who mentor and support us is also important. Having relatives who can help us, a husband, a father, or a brother. Male figures, it also helps because we still have a very patriarchal society. Also having very few women are prominent. I see politics as soccer. We didn't used to have a lot of women in the plain, you know, active rules, but now we have a lot of women. And I think my advocacy helped more women to go to local government and it has also helped women to go to parliament. But as usual, there's still the constraint of finances. There's still the constraint of culture because we still have this subtle culture that says women should be seen, not heard, and leadership should go to a man and all that. All those are aspects that we can continue to work away with. The affirmative action legislation can help to promote a quota system for a certain period for men to get into different levels of government. Are there any trailblazing Ghanaian women in politics and civil society today that we should watch or pay attention to? Yes, I would say that we had Mabel Dab in history. Then we had a number of women who came in through affirmative action in 1960. In 1960, we had only two women in parliament. Um, in 1979, I think we had five. And then it increased, but the percentages are still very low. So the few who are there, less than um, 12% in current parliament and those in government, we should let them share their stories, like how I'm sharing my stories and experiences, and record it, write it, talk about it. Maybe that will encourage society to know that women can also be public leaders. We should also know their challenges. That can also help us to also find a way of limiting the restrictions so that more women can also be part of the public system. So we've been talking a lot about politics and activism. And I'm curious, what got you interested in this area, particularly against a backdrop where women have faced challenges in obtaining key roles in the political arena? What inspired you to pursue activism? Even as a child, I've always been in leadership in my class. But what really inspired me was when I was in sixth form and I was a government student in sixth form. And I remember there was an opportunity for us to have mock party elections and mock parliament. And so I and my colleagues female colleagues, we formed the Dynamic Front Party, which was made up of only women. I think there were no elections. I can't remember what happened. The election was either postponed or it never came up. But that gingered that sense of political competitiveness and activism in me. And so when I went to university, I became the Volta Hall president. That's the JCR president of Volta Hall, which used to be the sole female hall. I think it still is at the University of Ghana in Lagos. And then I got to be involved in student representative council elections, the National Union of Ghana students elections. And when there was an opportunity for Ghana to go back into democratic elections, I was also one of the founding members of the New Patriotic Party. And were your parents very supportive of your interest in activism? I think my parents were also political, but on a quiet side. They were very avid supporters of their party, and they always made sure they vote. And right from childhood, I remember my father listening to the news. When it's time to listen to the news, there's no talking because he wants to be abreast with what's going on. And so we all got involved in listening to the news and reading papers. And I guess that was also a good foundation. Thank you, Gloria, for joining us today. Thank you, Pizza. I have been speaking with Gloria Afori Boydu. Gloria is presently a lecturer in law at the Ghana Institute of Management and Public Administration, GIMPA. The views expressed in this interview are the guest's own 
and do not necessarily reflect those of leaders of Africa and the leaders of Africa Institute. Do you have thoughts on women in politics and activism? We want to hear from you. Share your comments and questions at your voice at leadersofafrica.org. To learn more about Leaders of Africa, visit our website, leadersofafrica.org, and follow us on social media. And that's all for this episode of Leaders' Voices from Leaders of Africa. Thank you for joining us. Until next time.